Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm pleased to welcome Rachel Peskovich Kuntz to the show. Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Please, would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It feels like a, a, such an honor to you know be a part of this podcast because I know the great women who have been on the podcast before me. So it feels like really exciting to be in their company. Um, hi, I am Rachel Paskovich Kuntz. I am Senior Associate Counsel for Cybersecurity and Compliance at a DC-based tech company. Um, and I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't say that everything I'm about to say is based on my personal opinions and insights and does not reflect the opinions of any current or former employer. Um, but yes, yeah, so I work at the intersection of cybersecurity and compliance for uh, companies. It's my sweet spot. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And um, we are going to have a a big focus on cybersecurity today, get a little bit in the weeds and keeping in mind that a lot of our listeners um, are not 100% dedicated to cybersecurity. Um, It's a hat that many wear or a hat that uh, doesn't sit on compliance but perhaps like uh, ESG or data privacy, something that you know we, we liaise with other departments about. So we've got various interests in uh, cybersecurity uh, and taking into account many of our listeners will not have the same uh, expertise as you, though there I'm sure are a sprinkling of um, cybersecurity pros who have tuned in for this. So welcome to everyone. We're going to try and keep it as... Um, Uh, applicable across the board as possible. (laughs) And um, if you've been listening and uh, you liked some of the topics or would love to hear more about them in more detail or in a different way, don't hesitate to write in to Lisa or myself with your feedback. So Rachel, um, I'd love to hear, you know, we're uh, during a busy period. I know that in the pandemic, there was a large uh, increase uh, in terms of um, cybersecurity attacks um, were reported at the mm-hmm. beginning of the pandemic. So let's talk about now um, as we are early stages of 2022. Um, what would you say is uh, topical right now? What's going on in the cybersecurity world? And what are some of the key updates we should know about? Yeah. um, So kind of reflecting on the previous year, 2021 was the year of ransomware. And this is not Mm -hmm. to say ransomware had not previously occurred, Mm -hmm. but it was really top of mind because of the big attacks that went on. It was in the news. And with everyone working from home in that year, everyone was a little more cyber aware. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who's listening, who's not particularly um, familiar with that, ransomware is a type of malicious software that is used to block access to a system. Sometimes they will threaten to publish the information Um, So kind of in your mind, think of it like someone puts a new lock around your system or something important to you and they have the key. Mm -hmm. So that is ransomware. Um, And the reason why I think it also is buzzy in headlines for many reasons, but there are just so many aspects to consider with ransomware. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the the number one question is, do you pay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, hopefully this doesn't happen to you, but that's the first question is, you know, is this something we're we're going to do? And even in that part, you know, um, there are complications if you end up paying ransomware to an OFAC, you know, sanctioned Mm -hmm. company, you may not realize the group that you're paying the ransom to is part of that. So you might be violating some U.S. law. And I should caveat, I'm approaching this from a U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So there are those aspects to it. Um, what does your cyber insurance say? So it's also very important, whoever is in charge of your cyber insurance for your company, they should know whether there are any particular rules. Some cyber insurance say we don't pay for that. You don't have coverage for that. So you want to be mm-hmm. aware of those things. And then perhaps the more, you know, real but heartbreaking aspect is, you know, it depends on what type of business or company you are, because there is currently a lawsuit, uh, for example, in Alabama, for a couple who is suing a hospital, because they allege that the hospital was undergoing a ransomware attack, Mm -hmm. while the mother was induced, and the hospital didn't have access Mm -hmm. to all of the usual data and connectedness, Mm -hmm. because it was undergoing an attack. And the doctors allegedly missed some key information that was related to the baby's heartbeat and the cord being wrapped around their neck and the babies died. Mm-hmm. So the couple is suing the hospital say, you know, you should have told us we weren't fully informed. So this is not the first attack we've seen um, on hospitals, schools, mm-hmm. other you know, key infrastructure pieces. So it, it used to feel like a far off thing, like only certain companies get hit mm-hmm. with it. And I think what we've mm-hmm. really come to realize is everyone is a target for their own reason. So that's a really scary one. But you know, compliance, never waste a good crisis. (laughs) So if you're hearing about it for other companies, it's an excellent time to to go through the thought experiment. They're often called tabletops in the cybersecurity world of what if it happened to us? What is the first thing we would do? What is the second thing we would do? Um, It's an excellent time, especially, you know, we're still at the beginning of the year in 2022 to say, you know, to sit down and plan out the rest of the year and walk through those things. And do you feel prepared in certain areas? Is your comms Mm -hmm. team ready? Um, Mm -hmm. it's, It's an excellent time to, you know, reassess where you're at. Um, so that was, I would start there. Any thoughts about ransomware from your perspective? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, my understanding is that, um, even if you pay in a significant number of cases, you still don't get the data back. So when you're doing those tabletop exercises, Mm -hmm. I think you need to be prepared as one of the questions. If we decide to pay, what are we going to do if they don't give back that information for a company like mine, we're in healthcare and, um, the you know the the uh, how to say I guess the egregiousness of patient data going out may not be as important to to some people as other categories of data and so mm-hmm. there may be varying um, values based on the the type of data at stake so for me it's um, knowing that it's really uncertain this situation and that even if you make the decision to pay you may not in fact get what you want. Yep. And that is, it's definitely, like you said, it's a, it's a tough decision. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's something you hope you never have to do, but you need to prepare yourself now. This is, I think we've all come, had a come to Jesus moment that Mm -hmm. it could happen to me. You can no Mm -hmm. longer put your head in the sand about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, there, if we try to look for silver linings from this pandemic and everyone Mm -hmm. working from home, it has, you know, made people somewhat more, you know, closer to their technology, a little more aware of it. And you say, Hey, that could happen to me. So we should, we should think about it. We should prepare. Mm. Um, and then, you know, some other key updates are, I think there are some areas of cybersecurity that seemed really above and beyond a few years ago that are now expected. Mm. So what we mm-hmm. often see in a lot of these ransomware and other cases is that, um, if you just had someone's username and password, you can log in as them, have access to everything they have access to. So now, you know, we hear a multi-factor authentication or MFA, mm-hmm. um, single sign-on SSO, all these components that were like, oh man, you must be a real tech company to have all those mm-hmm. things. 
now it's expected. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough for smaller companies or older companies. These are things they have to invest in, but these are becoming the new normal. And mm-hmm. they're things we, we do have to get comfortable with now. You know, I'm often on the change management side where we're, you know, it's difficult to change all of these habits, but I think what's really neat, what I, one of the things I enjoy about cybersecurity is the things that you learn and teach people at work to be more aware and, uh, you know, in their role, they get to take home with them. So for example, mm-hmm. I first learned about password managers a few years ago um, from my coworkers who were much more technical than me. And they're like, Rachel, you don't have a password manager. Like, come on, <laughs> get with it. And then I felt very high and mighty when, you know, the, the public started talking about them because I knew what they were. Mm-hmm. So, and then you know, a lot of companies have corporate password manager accounts to help their employees not write down all their passwords mm-hmm. and have a single place to put them. So, you know, I know compliance, we're always trying to help people and make things better. And I think cybersecurity does provide a lot of opportunities for people to learn a lot and take those lessons home. Mm-hmm. So for the password managers, are there any ones that you would recommend that people look into? Uh, there are quite a few out there and really mm-hmm. technical folks will have much stronger opinions about which one's better <laughs> than the other. Um, two of them that I think of off the top of my head are LastPass and yep. OnePass. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you're not familiar with the password manager, I love the phrase one password to end them all. You mm-hmm. just have to remember your password to the password manager, and then you can store all of your passwords in there. Mm-hmm. And they often have like a, a browser um, plugin. So when you're on a website, it'll pre-populate your uh, password for you. Um, Some browsers do have that built in, such as um, Chrome has that, but Mm -hmm. unless you're aware of all the security features, you probably shouldn't use the default password (laughs) manager, but it's up to you. But I'll be honest, it was life-changing for me to Mm -hmm. only have to remember my one password and Mm -hmm. then it helps me with all of my others. So it's such a small thing that I learned from coworkers. It has made a big difference in my life. Mm. whenever I see memes about like forgetting passwords and things, I feel like it's so relatable. And you know how in the world there are, you know, there are all these different people out there. I think very few people are like belong to this category of I'm so great at remembering which unique <laughs> password I have for which unique website. Like it, it's just mm-hmm. everyone can relate to this. I have seen quite a few people say like on Twitter, I just don't have any more passwords left in me. Yeah, exactly. Those <laughs> you the can't one. remember them. Yeah. So like uh, another aspect of a password manager is they actually generate the passwords for you. So you to pick the length and complexity and yeah. it will come up with it and it will remember it. So big fan mm. of that. Um, mm. But I mean, I feel like the increased number of passwords is really keeping the posted industry alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, Yeah, I think I use less post-its these days as a general rule, especially since we got camera um, slidey things um, for our laptops. Yeah, I used to use a post-it upside down, but um, now camera slidey things are the preferred tool. Yeah. I do love, um, I'm preferential to the little stickers. It's, I love when vendors give those out because mm-hmm. my laptop won't sit flush if it has the slider oh. component, Yeah, but they sell special like reusable stickers and you can brand them. So I have one on my laptop right now from a former employer because they were so fantastic. <laughs> Good. I put one on my, um, my Peloton as well, which is kind of funny because I'm barely on Ooh. my Peloton, but um, <laughs> I was like, of all the sort of ransomware, I think like someone having photos of me sweating it out, um, red-faced, hair askew on the Peloton, that would be excellent um, blackmail material. 
or in particular, if it had the audio of you like cursing yeah. at the instructor <laughs> while yeah. you're trying to power through. Singing along off key to the Spice yeah. Girls, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Rachel, does that cover the updates you'd prepared? Or should I move on to the next question? Or are you still... Um, I think, well, I don't want to be like too heavy in one area because, you know, we'll just approach cybersecurity from a few different areas. So yep, um, sure. I think we'll kind of s- start with that. Lovely. All right. So my next question for you um, is in regards to what at the time was quite a high profile case. Um, it's the Colonial Pipeline one. Um, what are the learnings for compliance officers from that case? Um, okay, so for anyone who's listening who wasn't uh, super familiar with the uh, Colonial Pipeline, so they provide almost like half the fuel that's consumed on the U.S. East Coast via their pipeline system, and hackers gained entry to some of their networks via an outdated VPN or virtual private network account that didn't use multi-factor authentication. So all you needed was a username and password, um, and they don't know how they were acquired, you know, perhaps. But um, that's all they needed, and they were able to get in. And what I think is particularly interesting is they sat on that network for a week before they issued the ransomware note. Um, so the the note really, you know, was the trigger for events. But yeah, they were in the system for over a week, figuring out what they had access to, what was valuable, what could they download, what could they, you know, hold on to. That's the scary part is when someone is in your system and you don't know it and you don't know what they're looking at. Um, so they issued the ransomware note. It was promptly uh, reported internally. And the company made the decision to shut down the pipeline to prevent any potential access or misuse of it. Uh, According to the company, the system that runs the pipeline itself was not impacted. It was other components of the company, but they shut everything down and they did pay the ransomware note. Um, So... I personally, and I think you too, Mary, live on the U.S. East Coast. So at the time, it was very scary. We're like, will gas go $5, $10 a gallon? You know, are we going to be able to fill up our cars? It was a really big deal. And again, this is what brought cybersecurity issues to the the forefront. So there are a lot of great articles online about this. But um, one of the first things is, you know, system monitoring. Like if this particular user um, doesn't regularly check these like certain systems that it should have tripped a flag that this user was using this outdated VPN and they hadn't used in a long time and they were poking around at things. Now I realize for some folks on the call that also gets into privacy concerns, like how much are you monitoring your employees and what they regularly do? So cybersecurity usually works hand in hand with privacy to try to find the right middle ground there, but you do need to kind of have a baseline for what a user is usually doing. So that way you can detect any abnormal patterns. A great example of this is um, impossible logins. So if I log into my computer in the US and then five minutes later, I log in from a European country, that should trip a flag somewhere because I can't be in two countries at the same time. Um, So system monitoring, that was a really important thing. Like I said, they were in the system for a week before they realized it and they only realized it because of the ransomware note. Who knows how long they could have been in that system and use other tactics to try to get more access and do more damage. We don't know. Um, And then... So like system segregation, that was actually a positive in this case. So as mentioned, the hackers, according to the company's uh, reports, didn't actually have access to the systems that um, could have impacted the pipeline. They proactively chose Mm -hmm. to shut them down to prevent it. But that's actually a good example of proper segmentation. So if Mary only needs access to systems A and B to do her job, she shouldn't Mm -hmm. have access to C as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was good. Mm -hmm. 
and rapid response. And that, you know, gets back to what we were talking about earlier, of like practicing if something bad were to happen and we have to report it immediately, we have to issue a statement. Are we ready? Do you already have, does your company already have pre-planned blurbs? What social media platforms would you put it on? Who's allowed to say it? What are your employees allowed to say or not say? How are you, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think uh, we could learn a lot from our privacy folks who often have pre-prepared uh, talking points and reporting mechanisms mm-hmm. for privacy, but it's not always PII. There's other mm-hmm. things that we need to report, and we're uh, often not thinking of those if they don't touch PII. So, mm-hmm. um, sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, PII for those um, not in the um, space, um, um, personally identifiable information. Um, so, we want to be careful of um, personal data, especially in countries where there are robust data privacy laws in place. Um, The US is kind of an interesting one in this space right now because um, privacy is an evolving um, topic area from a legislation perspective. And uh, currently there's no federal data privacy law, um, (laughs) you know, governing everyday data. Um, Excellent. So um, interesting case. uh, Great for your, um, the people in your field, I I think, Rachel, despite the negativity, because it really made it mainstream. It made it relatable for people because it affected them in their day to day. Um, And unfortunately, we saw um, a a typical of human behavior, similar to the toilet paper issues during the pandemic. (laughs) You know, people were told, do not, you know, do not fill up your cars if you don't need to. Everyone, of course, ran to fill up their cars uh, mm-hmm. in a mad panic. So um, I guess, you know, if one thing is predictable, um, it is uh, human behavior sometimes <laughs> when, when you're in a sort of a crisis situation and you tell folks not to act in a certain way, oftentimes we can't help ourselves and we uh, buy a year's supply of toilet paper when that's not really needed. I think it's uh, similar to saying calm down has probably never calmed anyone down. (laughs) Saying don't panic has probably never helped anyone not panic. Just using the word panic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Be interesting to hear, you know, from the psychologists, what would be more effective wording. I know in New Zealand, when I was uh, trapped in the lockdown, the prime minister would, you know, with a smile on her face, would come onto the TV and say, there is enough food um, and provisions in the supermarkets if you'll only give them time to restock. Um, and I like uh, yeah, I, I don't think it worked. We're still out of toilet paper, flour and yeast. <laughs> <laughs> but she tried. <laughs> but yeah, she, she did try. And it would be interesting to hear from the experts, especially if we have any behavioral scientists who are listening in um, what you think might be a more effective approach in terms of um, messaging to audiences during a crisis. Oh, and um, one thing I forgot to mention is that, Mm. you know, because this was so in the news and such a big deal, Mm -hmm. obviously had the attention of Congress. So there have been bills put forth um, Mm. that do talk to this issue to, you know, hopefully try to prevent it in the future. Um, So Mm -hmm. things making you know, the payment of ransomware illegal or other components. Now, mm-hmm. that feels like quite the thought experiment. If, you know, if we make it illegal and you have no options, how does that affect, you know, the hospital who needs its records, whose mm-hmm. systems are being held ransom? But there are, you know, some potential bills in the pipeline. Um, oh, gosh, pun intended. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, about this issue, but kind of as you noted earlier, Mary, 
the U.S. isn't doing great at uh, publishing a lot of laws lately. We've got a lot of tension. So perhaps we'll see um, some great movement in other countries and we can follow suit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, <clears throat> um, sometimes that's all you need. I know that the New Zealand data privacy law, um, uh, the act had been put in place in 1993, um, but we certainly um, followed in the footsteps of a lot of other countries when putting together our data privacy law. So certainly helps to have um, some uh, steady work in front of you to be able to, to pull from. It feels like, uh, real quickly, GDPR, yeah. when you're, well, Europe has GDPR. We need something. Yeah. We can't have it all. <laughs> we need the CCPA. Um, yeah. So, but I will say, as a quick side note, a lot of um, laws that sometimes say data security laws are actually quite privacy focused, and they'll mm. have fairly generic light language about the security controls that are actually required. We often see language like, reasonable security controls for a company Mm. of your size but Mm -hmm. without better definitions or explicit requirements we're just going to see it when the lawsuits come to come to light about what does reasonable mean so we really need more guidance there no and that's why i think we see so much i mean while cybersecurity in and of itself often has a lot of gray when we're Mm -hmm. not getting these specific requirements of what's expected Mm -hmm. it's really hard to prepare for these types of attacks such as the pipeline attack Mm. Well, speaking about, <clears throat> excuse me, specifics, um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is right up that alley. So I wanted to get your thoughts on um, cybersecurity controls or program enhancements that companies should be focusing on in 2022. So in the absence of um, legislative direction in this area, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you're seeing as good ideas, best practices, trends and I, I I don't use the trend in terms of you know fashionable I mean things <laughs> that a lot of people have realized are a good idea to put in place um what are you seeing there so um since most of your listeners likely aren't you know dedicated cyber folks my first question to you would be do you know someone who works in IT or security within your company? If not, go make a contact. Um, you, you know, just like you're trying to spread the compliance word or whatever your focus is, you know, you need to know what's going on from the cyber and IT perspective. So if you don't have that, if you don't already have that relationship, regardless of your role, make that a goal for 2022. I'm going to find someone and just learn a little bit about our company, where we're at, what's on their roadmap. Um, Cause there are, there's so much overlap between corporate compliance and cybersecurity compliance. Mm-hmm. So that is my challenge for um, listeners. Mm-hmm. And then the other really approachable aspect of it, um, if you're not in cyber, is take the DOJ evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which is like Mm -hmm. my Bible, love Mm -hmm. it, Um, Mm -hmm. but take the requirements of it and just put the word cybersecurity in front Mm -hmm. of them. And mm-hmm. that makes it, that really, because I think when we talk about cybersecurity, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what a firewall is. How could I mm-hmm. possibly, you know, be an advocate for it? But if we look at the really basic requirements of the DOJ's recommendations, you know, do you do cybersecurity risk assessments? Do you have mm-hmm. cybersecurity policies, trainings? Mm-hmm. Do you have an investigation or reporting mm-hmm. mechanism? I think it helps you start to visualize that there's a lot of overlap and, you know, things such as your mm-hmm. ethics hotline. Well, do you have a topic there for IT or cybersecurity mm-hmm. issues? Are you promoting that that's an opportunity if someone mm-hmm. wants to make a report? Um, there's just, you know, I love uh, explaining like a cybersecurity compliance program from that perspective, because it's mm-hmm. really easy to see, to build those foundational aspects and then just, mm-hmm. you know, add the cybersecurity into them. Mm-hmm. So 
I would start there. If you did want to dip your toe into a little more cyber specific stuff, there are a plethora of frameworks, which is good and mm-hmm. bad because then everyone picks their own flavor and argues mm-hmm. theirs is best. Mm-hmm. Um, so NIST, N-I-S-T in the U.S., the NIST framework for improving infrastructure cybersecurity, it's about a 30 page PDF and it talks about the, con- the specific cyber controls and it's like, you know, it's um, written like a manual so it's easier for non-technical folks to kind of read and understand. Mm. But I think I, that's like half the battle working on the mm-hmm. cybersecurity side is making it applicable and approachable to people mm-hmm. and saying, you know, just like, you know, if you see something, say something, compliance is truly everyone's job. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with, you know, privacy mm-hmm. and security. It really is everyone's job. So mm-hmm. I'll start there for any thoughts, because I feel like some people are like, it's a new perspective to just put cybersecurity in front of compliance and, and rethink about it that way. I think it's a, a great idea, Rachel, because um, essentially the framework of a good um, program of controls is encapsulated in that evaluation. And so it gives you a starting point. So when you ask a question like, have I got training in place? Have, you know, is the hotline known as being something that people can use for, um, for uh, security issues? Um, it's a really great starting point and it almost acts as a gap analysis for you because when you're able to say, yes, I have this or um, I don't, or yes, I have this, but I've just realized it may not be detailed enough and I should probably um, engage a um, consultant if we don't have anyone internally that's specifically in this role to help tailor this to um, security risks, then, you know, you've, you've, you've given yourself a really great start. So I love that. Um, and I think the NIST uh, framework, something that we're going to see more of it's it's gaining prominence I think in the United States so a a great reference there and 30 pages I mean yeah it's a fair amount but it's not overwhelming and ridiculous (laughs) you know you can get through it with a bit of time um, use it as your starting point and again you know there well aside from budget but really there's nothing stopping you if you're nervous um, after working through some of this stuff get in a professional to help you or use it Mm -hmm. as your um your business case for why you need a dedicated uh, cybersecurity staff member if your company is that is at that level of maturity now where perhaps previously it was considered that a, a full-time dedicated person wasn't required but through this work you're able to say hey I need someone like this on my team. Um, so moving beyond that uh, I was thinking about this question that you you know put out there and mm-hmm. my Uh, recommendation is actually the same, whether you have uh, a smaller company, a newer Mm -hmm. program, or a more robust one, Mm -hmm. start foundational. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked at places with much larger cybersecurity programs. You've got a lot of great controls in place. But then Mm -hmm. when you look back to the basics, something like asset management, do Mm -hmm. we know how many laptops we have and who has Mm -hmm. them? And Mm -hmm. I, I would venture to guess most companies can't answer that question very well and that there's a lot of reasons for that you know you know the the employee who sits next to you who has his old laptop in Mm -hmm. the desk because he forgot to turn it back in but he got the Mm -hmm. new one that's very common Mm -hmm. um but that's a really foundational aspect because first you need to know what have you got and then okay are we patching it are Mm -hmm. we know where it's located if a laptop gets lost do we know the last time it was updated so you could really have to start foundational with a lot of things before you can build um so even for and i think we're going to see since we're seeing more um 
you know, as I mentioned, framework certifications mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, they all start with the foundation requirements and then you build upon it. A great example mm-hmm. of that is the new Department of Defense's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification mm-hmm. or the CMMC. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of us who are U.S. government contractors or I'm sorry, DOD contractors mm-hmm. or subcontractors, that will eventually be a requirement for you. So if you are in that space or thinking to get in that space, you know, put that on your roadmap, mm-hmm. but they have their current version has three tiers. Mm-hmm. So depending on how much information you have and other uh, services you provide to the government, there's mm-hmm. higher requirements. And I think that's a great mentality. And I hope to mm-hmm. see that as the future is a tiered system, because mm-hmm. we do need a baseline for everyone. You mm-hmm. might say, well, I am a manufacturer of toilet paper. Why do I need to care about cybersecurity? I have very little mm-hmm. information. You have employee data. You probably have email lists. You have other components. Mm-hmm. Also, as we were just discussing, like ransomware, you don't want your manufacturing site to get shut down. So mm-hmm. everyone needs a baseline. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's what we're really lacking right now or people understanding those controls. So it's a great place to start. Um, mm. And then the two, if I said I had to pick my top three for 2022, mm-hmm. where I'd love to see, you know, awareness, because I think it starts with awareness and looking into it. So mm-hmm. as mentioned, asset management, mm-hmm. um, the second would be vendor management. So we saw mm-hmm. that with the solar winds attacks, it was such mm-hmm. a widespread issue because um, so many uh, companies and government groups were using them. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any you know, personal thoughts on the solar winds attack? Yeah, thinking about controls for solar winds. So that was the one, if I recall correctly, where the former CEO placed blame um, as to the root cause of that case being an intern um, coming up with the password SolarWinds123. Um, so I think even for those of us who aren't cyber specialists, we all know that that is probably not a best practice password. Um, fairly easy um, in a brute force attempt um, to come across that one or even just guess it randomly. So thinking about that as a real life case example, Um, what controls are you giving to people who may not have been trained in this area? So so what powers do your interns have? And uh, thinking about the training side, are you training them? Do you have people like your interns um, on the training list? Or have you decided they don't count because they're not permanent uh, employees? So um, I think the SolarWinds case is a nice one. And then this isn't a control, but I would just comment I would say not great tone from the top um, to place blame mm-hmm. on an intern um, as, uh, uh, you know, the uh, senior management of a company, um, probably not the, the level of accountability and responsibility we want to be seeing. So not a beautiful um, example there. But yes, please continue, Rachel. Uh, yes, agreed. And as you mentioned, you know, what we're blaming the person, but should that person have had the ability exactly. to have access? We're going to be mm-hmm. back to, yeah, uh, which would be my third topic, regular user access controls. Uh, so at my in a, a former company, I've had to improve regular user access uh, mm-hmm. reviews, which is a lot harder than you think. You know, what, mm-hmm. what systems, what access does everyone have and do mm-hmm. they need? needed Mm that they needed to do their job, which is a common control in a lot of cybersecurity frameworks, but it's a lot more complicated to meet that requirement than you think Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, especially people who've worked at a company for a very long time. So, you know, I had a coworker, been with the company 15 plus years, had worked in multiple departments. Well, every time he changed location or department, he would still for a period of time during the transition, help his old team do their job. 
So they never took away access. So 15 years later, he had access to a lot of systems and a lot of places that he didn't need to do his day job, but no one ever reviewed the regular access review to say, does that person still need access? And that's, you know, when we see these really big breaches and impacts, it's like, you know, it's often because of lack of regular user access reviews, what systems do you actually need access to, um, and then regularly checking them, especially when people change jobs. Because I think companies mm-hmm. are great about mm-hmm. setting up access when you started a company and taking it away and disabling it mm-hmm. when you leave the company. But mm-hmm. the main risk is that is that middle part when you're you know switching jobs and helping someone out and doing them a favor mm-hmm. and they give you temporary access or perhaps they give you admin access to set up mm-hmm. a system and then they forget to you know lower you back to a regular mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So we just we see that and it's such like I said it's a, such an important control and it's really painful but the first time you get it right you mm-hmm. can repeat it. But mm-hmm. setting that up it, you know, it's painful. It's like thinking, <laughs> trying to try to think of all the different places you have a password. That's useful. Thank you for that, Rachel. I think that's a, a great list of priorities there. And I really liked the asset management one. And I'll ask our audience to think about who of you has had to get a new laptop from your company, um, an existing company during this time frame, uh, or a new mobile phone. Um, I was still on the iPhone 8 until very recently. It was fritzing out on me. Um, but, you know, did you send back your uh, your old devices? Because when we were in the office environment, it was hard not to hand over your old device in order to get mm-hmm. your new one. Now, many of us are in a situation where the new device is sent to us and the company probably wants it back for these purposes. Um, but then for pragmatic purposes, you might say, oh, but just in case there's something wrong with a new one, I want to hold on to my old one for you know a bit longer. Um, and then did you forget to send it back or um, you just didn't... Uh, continue that conversation and the company's not demanded it so where are you sitting now with all of these company devices uh, in your house and the theme that I'm feeling from what you just mentioned is accountability mm-hmm. where are we placing accountability is it you know and we should have a multiple layers of accountability, but it's the employee's role to return the device. Perhaps Mm -hmm. is the manager responsible for all of their employees' Mm -hmm. devices? Do they need to be aware of it? Mm -hmm. Is it someone in IT or cybersecurity? So Mm -hmm. the best case is obviously multiple layers of defense, but um, that's what I think I'm hopeful for the future of cybersecurity is really driving that individual accountability because topics Mm -hmm. like asset management, it's so easy to say, well, that's not my job. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to do with that. It's not my job. We all have levels of accountability for it. So, and then the other area we didn't get to dive too much into yet was vendor management. So mm-hmm. um, I think it was yeah in 2020, so a little farther back, mm-hmm. uh, we saw some big companies like Jones had, and there was a slew of them. And it turned out the common denominator was a file transfer um, software that a, they were all using called Excelion. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, a bunch of, you know, universities were using it, big law firms were using it to transfer files and they got hit. So then all of the customers using that software got hit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think what's tough in cybersecurity is nothing is ever perfect. You could do everything every year mm-hmm. and try your hardest and nothing mm-hmm. is without certain faults, but there are things you should and can't do. Um, mm-hmm. So before you have, you know, start a relationship with a vendor, are you vetting them properly? Mm-hmm. Do you have a, it's often called like a, a SIG um, or a, a customer questionnaire where you ask them questions about their security mm-hmm. posture and they can be as, 
short as 10 questions. I've seen some that are 300. I've answered both. Oh my gosh. Um, but they ask, you know, delve a little into like, does the vendor require its employees to do security awareness training? Do they do mm-hmm. phishing training? Do they mm-hmm. have to change their passwords every 60 days? Just mm-hmm. so you can gauge the risk level of that vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's very common in contracts to have um, audit rights or other types of rights, but I almost never see companies use those rights. Now I'll say mm-hmm. audits are pain, they're expensive. If you want to audit mm-hmm. a vendor, you know, um, there is usually the opportunity if the vendor itself has some sort of certification, like an ISO 27001 or a SOC 2 type 2 report, you can usually request copies of those on an annual basis mm-hmm. just to check that they're passing their audit. So you yourself mm-hmm. have, don't have to do the audit, but there's some faith since they're having a third party, you know, say, give them the thumbs up. So mm-hmm. from the flip side, you know, that does make you more attractive to your customers and make them feel more trustworthy of you. If you have something tangible from a third party, you can mm. show to prove mm. you're doing the right things to the best of your ability. Um, and then, you know, the problem also is people set it and forget it, but we need to mm. regularly touch base with our vendors in particular, our most important ones. Perhaps they have the most sensitive data for us or mm. our business relies on them. It's, you know, mm-hmm. supply chain aspect of that. So your HR um, information system, your HRIS, like that's mm-hmm. a really sensitive one. You probably want to do a regular mm-hmm. touch base with them and see how things are going. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the three areas I, I highly recommend thinking about for to our asset management, vendor management, and regular user access controls, which again, sounds scary on their own, but they really are more applicable (laughs) when we talk through them. That's awesome. So Rachel, you've given us a really nice run through of some key areas to think about for uh, cybersecurity risk. I'd like to turn a little bit now um, to a different area of risk and ask you about (laughs) a risk that you've taken in your career that has paid off. So it sounds cliche to answer it this way, but um, a huge risk in my career was taking my first job in cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. So I do not have a technical background. Um, I have no like personal certifications or anything. My background is I was a regular, you know, attorney at a law firm and grew mm-hmm. a little disillusion with law firm life as many of us do. And I was, mm-hmm. and then I took a, a break from law and I worked in the business as a project manager to try to see things from a different perspective. And that's actually where I fell in love with compliance. I Mm. Googled careers in compliance and I found Christy Grant Hart's book, How to Be a Wildly Effective uh, Compliance (laughs) Officer. I Mm -hmm. actually had her sign it because I'm a nerd. It's lovely. Um, But I learned all about this industry that really is, you know, the intersection of law and business. And the Mm. whole goal is helping people. And I just fell in love with it. Mm. I mean, I rarely meet, uh, outside of compliance conferences, I rarely meet people who are as passionate about policies. Mm. (laughs) Um, But so I was looking for something in policy and compliance. And there was an opportunity uh, at my former company, Thermo Fisher Scientific, in their cybersecurity department. Mm. And I applied and uh, to be their policy analyst, and I interviewed and said, I have no background in cybersecurity, but uh, I'm really passionate about policy and compliance. And to their credit, they said, well, we can teach you cybersecurity. We can't teach you to care about compliance. Mm-hmm. So um, it taught me a lot. It was a, an amazing opportunity, and that's where I was in the trenches with all of the different teams, because when you're at a larger company that has a more robust program, you get the really cool opportunity to work with each individual team, as opposed to a smaller company might have like a really small security team with a lot of generalists. Mm -hmm. I got to work directly with third-party management, vulnerability management, patch, our security operations centers, everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And it taught me a lot about also 
hiring people for potential and not necessarily just experience. You know, Mm -hmm. they hired me, someone with no cyber background to write Mm -hmm. their cybersecurity policies, Mm -hmm. you know, which says a lot that they were like, Hey, you know, and I think about that a lot myself in terms of hiring and it's encouraged me to Mm -hmm. really be more open-minded about hiring people Mm -hmm. who have different backgrounds. Cause you do get really great um, output when you have people Mm -hmm. with different backgrounds in the room Mm -hmm. and you said, it just, it's funny when, uh, you know, when you're applying for a job and they say, you know, only, you know, you don't have to have a hundred percent of the, um, mm-hmm. uh, criteria to apply, but a lot of people won't look at you unless you, you meet most of them. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's really impressive. The organizations who can move beyond that and look for potential and not just experience, but, oh, so I have a long winded way of saying that. So that was my, you know, foray <laughs> into cybersecurity. I toured with every group. Uh, I built my own cybersecurity compliance program, primarily based on the ISO 27001 framework. Um, I got that certification for my company. I am a big proponent of cybersecurity certifications because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of value. They're often a nice kick in the butt to hold yourself mm-hmm. accountable and mm-hmm. they make customers feel good. But I have just it's such, it's a new industry when you look mm-hmm. for jobs, you know, for cybersecurity compliance, like mm-hmm. compliance itself wasn't something people talked about five, 10 years mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. and now cybersecurity compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love being the intermediary between the technical folks and then mm-hmm. the rest of the business. And as I mentioned before, making it applicable and approachable, but I will sum it up when I took that job and everyone thought I was nuts. Um, I think you should, you know, try to do things that excite and terrify you, mm-hmm. whether it's jumping out of a plane or taking mm-hmm. a, you know, a role in a new industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I truly do believe in trying to take those opportunities in life. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, when we speak, I can see the passion in you, the excitement, the, um, well, the nerdiness, right? I think those of us <laughs> who really are enthralled by this can see it in each other and we thrive on our conversations with each other because we just enjoy talking about this kind of thing so much and even though I'm one of I guess uh, though I'm not a newbie anymore but I'm probably one of the the youngest set um, out there is it even when I first started which wasn't uh, that long ago on the in the anti-corruption space um, there was I think a a downwards look upon compliance compared with practicing law for many people. And I'm so glad that that didn't stop me because I truly believe that compliance is my calling. And so when we take these risks, part of it is that maturity growth in terms of just not caring what other people think. (laughs) Doing what is right by you is so important And then another thing that you mentioned, you know, I think perhaps at first blush, when you hear a company's like, oh, Rachel's got no experience in cybersecurity and they've asked her to write their policies in it. You're like, you might, you know, initially be like, that doesn't sound like a great idea. But you know what's really not a great idea is having, um, for example, and I've seen this firsthand, a law firm with huge experience in something like the FCPA write an anti-corruption policy that just stinks. It is not user-friendly. It is written for lawyers, by lawyers, um, and focuses too much on the theory rather than the pragmatics of what people need to do in their actual jobs. I would much rather have a Rachel who perhaps did not um, have, you know, had not previously written a cybersecurity policy, who's written it in plain English, it makes total sense, and has taken care to make sure that the right research is in there so that it's accurate, it's sensible, and up to date from um, a technical perspective. That is far more superior to something that's been written by someone who may have the experience behind them, but their experience just is not right for an in-house compliance program 
situation. So in that sense, uh, uh, a company took a risk on you and it really paid off, not just for you, but for them too. Mm -hmm. So lovely. (laughs) Thank you. And I feel like I need to defend them if anyone thinks that they're crazy. So I was (laughs) who worked with the experts and I translated Mm -hmm. their expertise and their different niche areas Mm -hmm. into the, and I documented the company requirements. So I wasn't just off in a bubble writing these things I didn't know about. Um, totally. Yeah, I hope so, I didn't come across this as, as Oh, no, I just that. don't want any listener to get worried and be like, oh, man, you were really unqualified. I mean, perhaps yeah. I was a little. But... You know, I, and I think you know, I got um, there. That, that brings me to a point, and it, it involves Christy Grant Hart. When um, when our book came out, and you may know, Rachel, the, the Sending the Elevator Back Down book well, is a compilation. Of course, I have my own copy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I haven't signed it yet, but um... I'll bring it. <laughs> Um, and it's a compilation of, you know, a lot of women's stories that are in there as well as some writing from Lisa and myself. And I mentioned to Christy Grant Hart that I said, I feel a little bit bad about the fact that, you know, I'm being called an author, but I did not write the whole book. And she said to me with uh, absolute love, but in, in, a, in a very matter of fact way, I never want to hear you say that again. You are the Aww. author of, of that. You are an author. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was a, a really great sort of um, push one just for, you know, the support of other women and their accomplishments. Um, and Christy really looking out for me there and um, self-confidence. But, you know, just because, <laughs> you know, you may have your name on something, it does not mean that there wasn't a cast of characters who helped you achieve that piece of work. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, you know, speaking of sending the elevator back down. So mm-hmm. again, I give a lot of credit for the ability and the opportunities I have now because of mm-hmm. that first, and it was my, a female manager who mm-hmm. hired me and took a chance on me, even though I had a non-traditional background, as you would say. Mm-hmm. And then after I had been at the company for a while and got to hire my own team, mm-hmm. I was able to take those lessons. And um, one of my initial hires was someone who came with a financial analyst background from inside the company. So again, just like me, you know, no cyber background. But um, the company did these monthly fishing exercises and our, our CISO's picture and name was on it. You know, if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to him. This is, you know, an 80,000 person company, mm-hmm. <laughs> very large and international. And mm-hmm. she said she wanted to learn more about cybersecurity, potentially, you know, mm-hmm. pursue a career. And mm-hmm. she emailed the, C- the CISO, um, that's mm-hmm. the chief information security officer, and said, I'd love to, you know, speak with you and learn more about it, mm-hmm. you know, and that to me just showed, and then when she applied for a role in my team, I was like, it showed drive. Like she's mm-hmm. interested in it. She's not afraid to say, Hey, I don't know anything, but I want to learn more. Where mm-hmm. do I start? Mm-hmm. And I was very, very fortunate to have an opportunity to hire her to my team again with no experience. So to continue to mm-hmm. show others that like, there's room for people with non-traditional backgrounds, as long as you have the drive and interest. So yes. I hope one day she gets to be a hiring manager and do the same thing for someone. Yes. I, I loved how um, one of the employers that took you on said that um they they couldn't they couldn't train you to be excited about compliance but they could train you about cybersecurity. and I think part of it it's the attitudinal thing um you know someone who's enthusiastic and passionate and has um you know an interest versus a boatload of experience I would take that person over um technical experience but a stink at it, you know, stinking attitude. Um, so, uh, sometimes all you need is someone to take a chance on you. And, uh, uh, I'm glad that you've been able to afford someone that opportunity, especially for new graduates. It is so darn hard 
to get your first role um and I, I think yes. I've talked about that on the podcast before like the how demeaning and discouraging it is to be looking for your first job out of um university mm-hmm. is just the worst so thank you for your sending the elevator back down <laughs> <laughs> yeah again I was fortunate to do it because someone did it for me and it's a really exactly. cool feeling yeah good well thank you for weaving that theme um into this episode obviously I love that (laughs) um if I can add a plug at the end um I just feel so fortunate to have found myself in the compliance industry Mm -hmm. I have never been to conferences or been in spaces with such a welcoming group um Mm -hmm. so for backstory I met Mary at the SCCE Compliance and Ethics Institute a few years ago I was my first time attending I went by myself didn't know a single soul and Mm -hmm. She was like, hey, do you want to sit with us? Do you want to participate? I mean, everyone in this field has just been so great. Um, So thank you to listeners and people who are participating because it's just a wonderful community. And, you know, sometimes I feel like a redheaded security world. I'm in compliance. I'm in this weird place. (laughs) Um, But definitely a lot of love on the compliance side. Good. Well, I'm glad you found your sense of belonging and felt welcomed uh, by people. I think attending the first conference is hard um and then as soon as you find your little as jay calls it our posse um (laughs) things become a lot easier and uh um it's it's like being in a room of friends as opposed Mm -hmm. to but you know i mean there's honestly there's nothing wrong with sitting there by yourself i remember lady gaga was performing in singapore um and several of my friends and i went and one of the things she asked was who's attending here alone? That's totally cool. I I like to do things on my own too. And so, I mean, I wouldn't let the fact that you don't know anyone at certain things. I used to, I used to be very codependent, (laughs) Um, but you know, whether or not you have found or you're going there to socialize, don't let that stop you from going to a conference and and absorbing all you can. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a Lady Gaga concert. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rachel, that brings us to the end um, of the episode today. So grateful to have your subject matter expertise, certainly not an area where I excel myself. So really learned a lot and feel like I'm better up to date on the cybersecurity side. Um, I believe you will welcome any of our listeners to invite you to be friends on LinkedIn and yes. continue the conversation. Um, so please do. And I'll just wrap up today's episode by saying um, there is a great wealth of information available. And one of the awesome places in compliance um, where there's a very valuable resource is Corporate Compliance Insights. Um, the founder is Sarah Hedden, and she has very generously um, continued to make the materials on uh, that website available for everyone for free. Um, so if you haven't come across it before, you'll find a lot of um, up-to-date articles on areas like cybersecurity, data privacy, anti-corruption, um, EU whistleblowing law, all sorts. If it's compliance related, um, you will find it on there. So check out corporatecompliance.insights.com. Um, subscribe to the newsletter and we're very grateful to CCI for being a um, huge advocate sponsor and supporter of ours at Great Women in Compliance. Thank you all. Take good care and we look forward to seeing you next week.